The St. Louis Board of Aldermen just finished a year chock full of high-profile and at times passionate debates. And one of the board's newest members has plenty of observations on what unfolded. Alderman Kara Spencer of the 20th Ward joins us on another edition of Politically Speaking. Nine, eight, eight, seven, six, six five, five, four, three, two, one. Uh, I think that is fair As to I say. As I say, hands to kiss and babies to shake. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I think my record speaks for itself. That's a really good question. Hello and welcome to the Politically Speaking Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Rosenbaum, a reporter with St. Louis Public Radio. Joining me in our St. Louis Public Radio studios is... Uh, colleague Joe Manis. And representing the beautiful 20th Ward of the City of St. Louis, our special guest today is... Kara Spencer, Alderman of the 20th Ward. Thank you very much for joining us today. Um, before we um, ask you hard-hitting questions, we always like to ask <laughs> Alderman just what their ward consists of, because people may hear 20th Ward and that may mean very little to them. Um, what what neighborhoods, what boundaries does it represent? Yeah, and if they're from my generation, they might think it's across town because it used to be across town. Sure. So the 20th Ward is in uh, South St. Louis City. Uh, represent uh, the neighborhoods of Gravoy Park, uh, Dutchtown, Marine Villa, and a very small portion of Mount Pleasant. So uh, basically the northern boundary would be Cherokee Street. So I have the south side of that street. Uh, going so that includes Dutchtown? It does. Yeah, I used to live down there. Okay. Well, so I have a portion. Casco Street. That's the street I live on. Really? Mm-hmm. Yep. So I'm lucky enough to have a view of the river. Yeah, 3801. I was I'm not going to disclose my address. No, you don't have to. I, I know. I mean, this was mine because I don't live there anymore, but it was a neat old um, Victorian with these fabulous stained glass windows and the doors. Yeah, Marine Villa has some beautiful homes. So do all the neighborhoods I represent, actually. And I would argue that all the neighborhoods in the city have some beautiful uh, homes. But uh, so um, the ward goes all almost all the way to the river. Uh, it ends at Highway 55, uh, which is right there along the river in that portion of the city. And then it goes all the way uh, down south to Merrimack and across to Grand Avenue. Now, um, as you kind of alluded to, um, your, your northern border is, is Cherokee Street. And my understanding is for a long time, Cherokee Street has, has been split between two different aldermen. So aldermen, uh, Kenneth Orthman of the Ninth Ward represents part of it, and now you represent the other part of it. Is that correct, first of all? Yep, that, that's correct. That How, how is that like, basically? Because I know that your predecessor had a lot of like different ideas about development than, than Ortman did, and it caused just a lot of conflict, especially with the business community there. What's kind of your sense on how that dichotomy works out? Uh, sure. So, um, you know, I, I feel like I have a very good relationship with the Cherokee Business District. I've been a, a, a member of that organization for a long, long time, long before I, I decided to run for office. But, uh, you know, I think uh, Alderman Orton and I uh, see eye to eye a little more on some of the development issues than uh, my predecessor may have, although I can't speak to their relationship personally. Uh, we certainly get along very well. And so, uh, you know, we see each other very often at meetings and we seem to be on the same page, at least with regards to uh, Cherokee Street stuff. So why don't you tell us and our listeners a little bit about yourself and, you know, your other involvement in Cherokee Street and your other part of your life and just kind of just how you got into politics. Sure. So uh, I was born here in South City, St. Louis. Uh, uh, my folks lived on Belle Reve. 
Uh, but I did uh, grow up mostly in the unincorporated St. Louis County area uh, where I attended. I'm going to Parkway South High School um, and uh, was a patriot there. And then I attended um, at Truman State University where I studied mathematics. Um, and then I proceeded to um, uh, work in the field of mathematics actually for 14 years. I um, uh, did mathematical modeling for big and small companies, uh, problem solving and things like that. Um, and then um, you know, came to decide uh, very unexpectedly, I would say, to run for uh, Alderman of the 20th Ward. Now, what do you do now? Aside from being an alderman, so I've been a full-time alderman for uh, okay. the vast majority of the year, okay. and I and I have taken on a little bit of consulting work here on the end. But um, but you know, um, it's a it's a it's a full-time job to get uh, to get a full understanding of how uh, the role works. So, what kind of prompted you to run against Alderman uh, Schmidt? Because I actually know the uh, recent electoral history of that ward pretty well. He, mm-hmm. ran, he had a very strong challenge in two thousand and seven by Galen Gandolfi, almost lost to him. I think it was only a 20-vote margin. And then I think the next cycle, he was challenged again. And it, I kind of got the sense that as that the business community was basically fed up with him and that anybody who was a viable challenger could unseat uh, Alderman Schmid. Um, what made you be that challenger who eventually did? Sure. So, um, I, well, first of all, I love the South Side. I love the city of St. Louis um, and, um, you know, had been a part of uh, Cherokee Street development for some time. I uh, had been working out of uh, the first co-working space here in St. Louis Nebula since they opened in 2010 and just became a part of the community that way, the business uh, community, obviously, um, and saw the challenges, you know, um, through uh, that the business the businesses were experiencing with their leadership. There was sort of a lack of synergy there. And so, um, you know, we just started to kind of talk amongst ourselves and ask around who, who might be interested in, in being more of a, a voice of a, the majority of folks that live and work and play in the area. And, and, and there weren't, you know, you know, running for alderman is a, is a daunting idea, I think, especially to run against an incumbent in a pretty entrenched city like St. Louis. But it was certainly a doable task. I, I like to tell folks that, um, you know, really all it took was a really good pair of boots because I did a lot of walking and a lot of knocking on doors. And, um, you know, even though the business community was behind me, a lot of a lot of those folks don't vote in the 20th Ward. Um, and so I was really proud that uh, I think one of the most important things I accomplished this year was just increasing the voter turnout rate in the 20th Ward. By it's, been, it's been historically very low, from it, what I recall. So, so what do you see as the biggest issues in the 20th Ward that, A, helped you get elected, and, B, consume a lot of your time now? Sure. Um, you know, I think the biggest issue in the 20th Ward is the biggest issue citywide, and that's crime. Uh, crime is up across the city, but it is uh, also up in the 20th Ward. Um, but we also have uh, quality of life issues, um, you know, vacancies. We have a lot of vacant houses, a lot of vacant lots, um, and a lot of issues of maintenance there, uh, you know, our streets are suffering, they're crumbling. Um, you know, we have infrastructure needs that are really, um, you know, that need to be addressed. Um, but we also have, um, we also have some tremendous assets, I think, in the 20th Ward that mirror some of the city's assets. Our small businesses are phenomenal. Uh, the growth we have, the just the passion people have uh, for the city and for, for, for Gravway Park, Dutchtown, Marineville. Our neighborhood uh, pride is so, so strong in the city. It's really incredible. When I was doing some research for stories for the Beacon on Cherokee Street in 2011, I got the sense like Gravway Park had a pretty strong neighborhood association or at least a strong neighborhood um, reaction to crime. They had the neighborhood ownership model kind of entrenched there. 
Um, that was in 2011. What's kind of the status right now in 2015? Because I've gotten a sense that Gravoy Park, along with other neighborhoods uh, throughout St. Louis uh, City, is one of the places where there is a lot of crime. There's some shootings and even some some murders as well. Like what's kind of what's kind of the lay of the land there? Well, actually, um, so uh, you know, interesting you mentioned that, but Gravoy Park didn't have a single homicide in 2015, mm-hmm. um, and so and that was a change, um, and so that's been um, a really really positive change. Uh, but we do have a very involved community. The Neighborhood Association there um, has been around for a long time. We've also seen the uh, kind of bubbling up of a new Neighborhood Association, it looks like. Uh, mm-hmm. Folks are organizing. There's been uh, you know, new folks uh, moving to the neighborhood that may not you know, have been a part of the existing structure there and, and, and have opted to kind of organize themselves. And I think you know, uh, any avenue in which you can become involved in your neighborhood is a good one. So I support anybody's initiative, uh, whether it be a new neighborhood association or, you know, any kind of community organizing. And so there's been a lot of that popping up in the last couple of years, but it certainly is strong. And we do have a lot of folks that will come out um, uh, for events. We've, we've hosted quite a few of new community events this year that have been extraordinarily well attended. Um, and so folks are really looking for, for ways to give back and be a part of an active community. Are there certain types of crime that are more of a problem than others? Uh, gun crimes, absolutely. So, um, you know, uh, across the board in the city, but, uh, you know, in Gravoy Park, too, you know, uh, gun 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 crimes are very, very significant. You're, um, you're talking about, like, robberies? Uh-huh, aggravated assaults, um, things of that nature. Uh, I think that, uh, you know, across the city, aggravated assaults with a, with a gun are up 21% this year over last year. Um, that's uh, new news, uh, at least as of November, I think, was the Why last. Why do you think that is? I think because guns are incredibly and ridiculously accessible um, in the city of St. Louis. Um, so, And we have younger and younger people um, having access to guns. Um, so I think 2016 should be the year that we, we really uh, look at what we can do as a city about guns. Now, yeah, as, you, as we're recording this, uh, President Obama has just um, announced some new... Um, executive order things regarding some gun things. Will any of that affect uh, the city or local wards like yourself as far as particular things? Because like it, it does heighten background checks and a few other things. Do you think that will make much difference? Or is that more of something that would not affect something on the local level? Yeah, I can't speak to that. I haven't, I haven't seen that. Uh, but I think anything, you know, it, any motion is going to be a good motion, uh, you know, whether it's background checks, um, taking a look at, um, you know, um, you know, um, assault weapons, um, you know, ammunition. There's lots of things we could do at the local level, I think, to make uh, guns a little more, a little less, uh, so uh, less pervasive. Um, you know, they're just, you know, right now they're a form of currency, um, in our, in our neighborhoods, they're a form of life insurance. Um, and so, and if that's what, that's what, that's what we're dealing with. And, and that's a serious, serious problem. It's a pervasive problem that goes beyond just gun control. Um, uh, you know, we have to provide uh, ways out of poverty to folks. We have systemic, uh, issues of poverty in our city. Now, one of the things that came up pretty recently that was, uh, written about in the Riverfront Times is a plan that you have about overgrown lots in St. Louis, which 
may not seem like the most super exciting issue on its face of it, but it's a huge problem oh, in the yeah, city of St. Louis. Yeah, and it's been a huge problem for 20, 30 years. Oh, absolutely. So, so tell us a little bit what the problem is and what you want to do to, to kind of combat it. Sure, and maybe you don't think it's uh, the most exciting thing, but I have a, uh, have some residents that would disagree. I didn't say I did. I'm, <laughs> but, I was talking in general, but but continue. But sure, so, um, so you know, uh, I would say as an alderman, uh, some of the mo- uh, most common calls I get, at least in the summer months, are about overgrown lots. Um, and so, especially if you live next door to a city-owned vacant lot, which many of, of our residents do. I mean, we have uh, 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 170-some-odd uh, LRA pro- parcels in the 20th yeah. Ward, and that's just in a one-square-mile block of the city. So, um, so you know, our forestry department does a phenomenal job with the small number of resources that they do have uh, getting lot, lots cut. You know, when we when we skip a lot here and there, you know, we I can call Skip Kincaid personally, and he goes over there and takes care of it, no problem. But, you know, the truth of it is we just don't have the resources to take care of all those of, of all those parcels. And we spend an enormous amount of money, I think $3 million at the city, cutting vacant lots. Mm. And so when you have um, parcels that are hard to market, hard to sell, and you know they're 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 decreasing the quality of life of people, and they're costing the city real money to deal with. Um, it's a no-brainer to give those to residents who are willing to make them into city assets, put them on the tax roll, and 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 you know sort of give neighbors credit for the work that the city would otherwise do maintaining them. So how would it work exactly? Would somebody who like lives next to a, a grassy, overgrown lot who has a lawnmower just tell the city, "I'm willing to mow this," and you know? give me a certain amount of money to do it? Or is it, is it just more of a volunteer sort of thing? No, sure. So, um, you, you know, uh, I've been working with Alderman uh, Chris Carter on this, as well as the mayor's office and LRA, who's, who's really excited about the program, frankly. Uh, it, we're modeling it after uh, other cities. And so we have some models to go after. And so we're going to create a, um, an application process where you just go ahead and apply, uh, first come, first serve basis. So if you and your neighbor on the other side want the vacant lot, you're going to have to beat 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 the other one to the punch but so would 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 they actually get the land Mm -hmm. yes absolutely okay okay so let's say if you live because i'm familiar with this issue so let's say two neighbors Mm -hmm. and there's a lot in the middle Mm -hmm. and they could agree to what split it we're not going to be dividing parcels so you know it would be one or the other they're going to flip a coin if they both want it well if you get down to lra first once we get this (laughs) thing unrolled you know the key would be you better put on your running shoes to get to lra basically continue but sure so it'd be pretty easy to apply um there'll be a fee associated with that and then you have to agree to maintain it um you know and, and we've discussed this uh, the process of making sure that uh, that folks are doing a good job um you know uh, skip kincaid again at forestry does a great job taking in calls to a citizen service bureau and when when even when the city doesn't get the lot uh, mode or when private owners don't do that. We have a mechanism in place right now. If you don't mow your lawn, your neighbor can turn you in and we, we send somebody out to check you out, see if you're uh, outside of uh, compliance and then we issue you a letter and then we find you and mow your lawn for you. So so you think this will be one of the biggest issues you'll be pushing in the next year? Or I mean, I, I don't want to say the biggest issue, but one of the big issues that you're going to be pushing in the next year. You know, I mean, it's a fun issue. It's And it is, I think, going to make a difference. Um, but I, there are other issues, I think, too, that we need to tackle. Uh, I think the, you know, safety on our streets, the gun crimes, I think that's a really big issue that I would like to work on. Um, you know, uh, something that has been largely missing from the city conversation 
station is our uh, public transit system. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we've talked a lot this year about a $1 billion stadium project, and I'd like to shift the focus to a $1 billion Metrolink uh, conversation, talk about how we can get some federal matching uh, dollars on that. Um, uh, but we've, you know, I th- I th- so, so those are some, you know, things that I'd like to be pushing. Um, and then some good uh, amenities to our uh, residents. I think, you know, a no-brainer would be Wi-Fi in our parks. Um, you know, addressing some, you know, predatory businesses like payday lending. Uh, we're looking at doing something at the state level, but uh, I don't think there's going to be much appetite for that. So we're looking, I'm looking right now on what we can do at the city level to address some of those issues that are affecting residents' finances and what ability. What could the city do on payday loans? Because I know the state, there's been various efforts over the years. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, when Nixon first ran for governor, you know, he was highlighting the high rates. But, it, but the payday loan industry... Um, has a pretty some, some pretty strong and influential lobbyists, and pretty so far have blocked anything. So, what could a municipality like St. Louis do? What could we do? Well, you know, I think Missouri has more payday lending um, options or you know, stores yes, than, we do. than any other state. And so, and I and I realize that the lobby is pretty hard. But this, so, other cities have taken a look at this. Austin, Texas, for example, uh, ran into the same problem with their state legislature. They were unable to get something passed, and so um, they have implemented um, some guidelines, uh, mandatory uh, um, um, registration. Uh, with the city of Austin, Texas, and some capping on limits and things like that. And so, and they have also provided some resources to other cities who want to pass similar ordinances. So um, that's, the, the, that. there are options for us as a municipality for dealing with payday lending. Another thing I wanted to talk about was the promise zone designation for St. Louis. And the reason I'm bringing it up with, with our guest here is um, the promise zone is a program that was developed by uh, by HUD to steer resources toward a, a certain boundary of a community that's selected. And St. Louis was selected. They drew kind of a, a, a map of where the promise zone was. And during a committee hearing, I think pretty early on in your tenure, you questioned why your ward in Southeast St. Louis wasn't brought into the promise zone. And it caught my attention because it, it was like a very viable question because Southeast St. Louis City has many of the same issues that North City and North County have with crime, poverty, educational issues, the whole gambit. So kind of tell me why that caught your attention as well. And um, if you've seen any headway on that since you brought that up. Yeah, so you spell it out pretty clearly. Um, and so it was a stark um, omission on my part. You know, there were a lot of little municipalities, neighborhoods sort of gerrymandered into that definition. I understand that it had to be contiguous. Um, and so that was sort of the hurdle there. Uh, but I think we could have uh, incorporated, as you mentioned, uh, you know, a very hot spot in, in poverty. We also have uh, the highest concentration of children uh, in Dutchtown and Gravelly Park neighborhoods. So I think it would, it would have been a really great addition to that. Um, and I do look forward uh, uh, to, in 2016, making sure that we are uh, sort of um, compensated for that omission. Uh, because, you know, the whole designation of the promise zone is to focus and concentrate uh, some resources down there that we really, frankly, need, I think, more than most places. To kind of piggyback on your point, like, there are certainly some municipalities, for example, in St. Louis County, which are clearly needed in that promise zone, places like Wellston, Pine Lawn, you know, some parts of unincorporated St. Louis County. The reason it caught my attention, there are also some, what I would consider middle to upper middle class municipalities in there, like Belnor, Greendale, I think Bell Ridge to some extent. 
And if you maybe took those out of it mm-hmm. and got creative with the map making, you could maybe bring it down to southeast St. Louis City, which I think fits the designation of the promise zone in many respects. I'm sure that was your thought as well. Yeah, I, I would have to agree, although I, I have to say I'm not as familiar with those uh, right. municipalities. But um, I certainly did. Uh, you know, when you look at crime maps and you look at uh, where gun violence and things like that are and indicators of need, um, you know, South City, the area I represent is a, is a, is very, is very, right. you can definitely see those issues. And so um, it was a stark omission, I think. Well, I actually, when uh, Julian Castro, the HUD secretary, was in town, I think in August, I actually asked him kind of why the, the promise zone in St. Louis was drawn the way it was and kind of to him to explain in, I guess, general terms, the rationale and kind of why it would happen here and other places. This is a little bit longer of a clip, but I wanted to make sure it was completely in context. This is what he had to say. Uh, I will say that those boundaries are, are forged by the local community when they submit their application. And then we have a competitive process across the nation based on what's been submitted. So, so that began at the local level. And so I, I'm not sure, you know, what was in the thinking of where to set the boundaries. However, uh, you know, I was mayor of San Antonio when we were part of the first round of, uh, of Promise Zones. And both as mayor and now as HUD secretary, I can tell you that sure, we always get that question about, well, why this part of the community and not another part of the community? Because the fact is that whether it's St. Louis or it's San Antonio or it's Los Angeles, you have a lot of places that are distressed in urban core neighborhoods that need attention and investment. Um, and that's why the president has been very clear that, that we all need to do more to pay attention to what's happening in these areas. And uh, that's why you know, we have a commitment to 20 promise zones during this administration. And we're going into the last round of promise zones. So I would encourage, uh, if there are other communities in this area, I would encourage them to be a part of that third round application process for promise zones. So I'm not really sure there's going to be a situation where you just like, you know, you 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 have just the 20th ward as the next promise zone, but potentially maybe you could have them amend the map or something like that. I, I don't know how federal guidelines like that work, but what's kind of your, your reaction to the, the secretary's comments about that? Sure. So, I mean, I talked with uh, Otis Williams over at SLDC quite extensively about this, and, you know, it was my understanding that we can't change the map. Um, but that uh, we are going to be working on, you know, making sure, for example, uh, through CDA um, and through other mechanisms that we are going to be seeing uh, some additional resources. And we, we, we did uh, through um, uh, through CDA see additional resources in, in the 20th Ward in this last year. And so and, and I, I think we'll continue to see some of that as we move forward. And I think part of that is because of this dialogue. And I'm, I'm, I'm glad we're having it. I want to ask you a more general question before we get into some of the things you've experienced in your basically, I don't want to say your first year because you were elected, I guess, in April. So it's been about, what, eight, nine months so far? I don't know. I'm bad at math. You're better at math than me. But what's kind of been your general impression of being in the Board of Aldermen? Because some people come into the board, they're committee people, they're state legislators. They kind of have a political experience. I I know that you were kind of involved in some elements of politics before. I know you were kind of involved in the opposition to the transportation tax in 2014, but I don't think you were in like elected city politics. So you kind of come in from a different perspective. What's kind of your general impressions of being on the board as kind of a newcomer? Sure. Yeah, I, th- I would call myself a, a very a newcomer to politics, having uh, never really been involved in 
um, and 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 St. Louis politics in any meaningful way before running for office, actually. And so, um, so I come from a business background. So, um, you know, one of the things that really struck me right off the bat is that at this, you know, we don't really look up data very much. <laughs> I don't know how to put this lightly. I so the board of all you know, in the late seventies, it's not much different. Go ahead. But you know, I'm used to making data driven decisions. And so that's, again, one of the changes I'd like to see uh, pushing this year is, as, as you know, I ask a lot of tough, tough questions at the board and in committee hearings, et cetera, and uh, continuing to demand more and more data uh, as we make decisions for our city's finances, you know, uh, the state for example, and other things uh, that I feel like we should really be looking at data. Um, um, but the board is pretty impressive. I mean, you know, uh, I can't, every member of the board really cares about the city and their constituency and really has um, um, a unique, there's, it's definitely a diverse group um, in every sense of the word. And it's always a, it's always an interesting day down at the board on Friday. So that's putting it mildly. Now, is there any sort of the atmosphere? Has it been affected at all? I mean, I know you're fairly new by by the fact that they will be reducing in numbers in a few years. Does it appear to affect anything as far as when people are talking or debating stuff? You know, I don't think that really has much effect on the debating. Um, you know, it, it is a little bit, it's, you know, everybody has at least one more election cycle before that starts to really come into play. And, and frankly, we haven't discussed it much at the board, uh, much to my disappointment, because I think it's something we should be uh, very much looking into how we're even going to do it functionally. Uh, well, there were a couple of big debates while in your first few months. Mm -hmm. The first one that struck me, and this is not the only one, but one that I cover extensively was the debate to potentially raise the city's minimum wage, mm -hmm. which you were a supporter of. It kind of split the board into, I want to say almost in half, because I don't think it passed by very much. Um, what was kind of your impression of how that debate unfolded? Because it started off as a, you're going to raise the city's minimum wage to $15 an hour. It went down eventually to 11 which passed, but it's now kind of being litigated in court. Um, and it, it stoked some pretty intense debate on both sides. What was kind of your impression about how that kind of unfolded? Sure, yeah, it was pretty intense. Um, but, I, you know, again, it comes down to be, uh, making informed decisions. And I think uh, we should, it, you know, it was unfortunate the way the timing worked on that. And we had to move it really, really quickly. I would have liked to see a lot more research and a lot more data. Um, local experts coming to the table, uh, national experts uh, discussing how this could affect our uh, um, economy. Uh, and so... Uh, so, you know, to, 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 you know, when the, dis the debate was stopped, um, you know, that was unfortunate. Um, and uh, it did, it, it, it left a bad taste, I think, for some uh, new activists who were just becoming active. Um, uh, so, but th then again, I think, you know, we're able to look past that, you know, disagreements and get along pretty well, I think, at the board. And I, I've made this observation before, because I cover county council and the board of aldermen. And I'm just always struck by when I go to the county council, there's rarely ever debate on anything. Many of the decisions are made like ahead of time. Yeah. And sometimes mm -hmm. the councilmen kind of explain why they're voting on things, but they never like have the back and forth with like what's goes on in the board of aldermen. Some people may look at what happens in the board of aldermen negatively and say it's just a bunch of crazy politicians arguing at each other. But oftentimes it's like this is the arena where the arguments for and against things are being made very, very passionately. And, and 
that's maybe how it's supposed to work, essentially. I think it is. I mean, I don't know. Sometimes I think uh, uh, members, you know, we get up and just talk for our own hearers. Uh, but I think it's important to get uh, our stances on record. Um, and, you know, I, I, I try and get up and especially on meaning and meaningful votes mm-hmm. to stay one way or the other why I've decided to vote this way or that way. And it's important to do uh, to, to tell our constituency why we're supporting something or opposing it um, and to bring up points that, um, you know, are are noteworthy and newsworthy, um, you know. Uh, so I, I personally think the debate is always, it's always spirited, but it's also very useful. So the other big thing that came to a head pretty recently was this debate over the stadium. And we're recording this on Tuesday. I just want to make note, we're not going to get super specific because I'm fearful on Thursday the situation is going to change dramatically and the Rams will have already announced they have left. But, <laughs> but with that in mind, it was a really fascinating thing to see how the city dealt with this because it's kind of going on in different levels. It's going on in the state and the legislature is threatening not to appropriate any money for the stadium. And they still might not, even if the Rams don't relocate. But a lot of the pressure fell on the city to kind of help pay for the stadium, especially after the county was taken out of the equation. Mm-hmm. And that kind of came to a head with this financing bill, which you opposed. What was kind of your just general postmortem impression of that entire debate? Uh, well, again, it comes down to data. You know, I really felt like the members of the board were largely kept in the dark about the proposal itself, um, having never met with a single member of the regional sports authority in any way, shape, or form. Um, and, you know, um, the numbers kept changing. It was extraordinarily frustrating and confusing to, to receive the new board bill the night before. Uh, I don't even remember how many pages of documents right. it is, but it was impossible to digest. Uh, you know, I spent a lot of the time uh, during that meeting just trying to read through the new documentation and trying to understand what had changed since uh, 11 o'clock the night before. Well, yeah. there was one person who did bring up data often who mm-hmm. was also opposed to this, and that was uh, St. Louis Comptroller Darlene Green. Mm-hmm who I would say is, you know, she's been elected to office five or six times. She's not really seen as like a a slay person or a reed person. She's seen as a pretty independent politician. Is that a fair thing to say? Yeah, I think that's very fair. In fact, I mean, just to put this in context, traditionally, it seems like I would say, at least back last 40 years, most of the comptrollers have been rather uh, independent players, and they've often played roles in raising questions about stadiums. I mean, this happened way back during, you know, when the Jones Dome was uh, first proposed back when Vervis Jones was comptroller. So there's been financial questions raised about various issues, and often it's the comptroller who raises them. So I mentioned this because in the last couple of days of debate, Darlene Green actually came to the Board of Aldermen and spoke, which I don't think happens very often. No, it doesn't. And this is part of what she had to say about this stadium deal. There is no guaranteed minimum revenues that we receive from the project in order to pay the debt service that we are going to be asked to issue, the, um, the bonds that we're going to be asked to issue. Therefore, as Comptroller, I say that the board bill before you today is not fiscally responsible. And I just want to emphasize that no one has really disputed the, uh, the comptroller's contention that this the amount of money that's going to be spent on the stadium will not be covered by the revenues that come in directly from the Which stadium. Which means the city would have to use other money. I mean, even the mm-hmm. mayor's office hasn't denied that. And I mean, it's evident now because 
you put in four, we put in six million dollars for the Jones Dome, and from the Rams, I think there's only about four million that comes back. Mm-hmm. I know this is probably more of a question for the pro stadium people, but I'm just kind of curious why that didn't raise more alarms with some people in the board of aldermen, essentially. Uh, yeah, I totally agree. I mean, I mean, again, it com- comes down to we. I mean, there was just an amount, a, a lot of confusion as to what the numbers even were. Um, and so, you know, to come down to those exact numbers, you know, it was it was a frustrating process. But I, I totally agree. I mean, we, you know, it was clear to me that a significant amount of money was going to come out of general revenue. Um, and so that's an, it was it was an, it was a no brainer. I mean, I couldn't I can't imagine um, having to come up with a general revenue to pay for um, an entertainment uh a district in a city that has uh, um, 187 homicides this year. I mean, it, it's, it's just a crazy uh, allocation of resources. It could be that some proponents are basically saying, well, maybe it's worth allocating some money to pay for this stadium. And I think that even like Alderman Jack Coder has said, you know, it he it is there is a cost to this, sure. and some there are some benefits that are ancillary sure. that could help around the stadium or something. Yeah, like I mean, because sure. they're contending. Uh, that it, it, it could create other development, particularly where the stadium is being proposed, which is pretty much not developed right now. I think, and they're also contending that somehow it will bring in other money, but it also would encourage other development, which in turn might have an effect on crime. I mean, in theory, I'm sure. not advocating it. I'm just kind of laying out what they're. We're just kind of playing devil's advocate, but I don't, I don't, I don't really think anyone has really brought forth the argument the stadium will pay for itself, and it will end up costing the city money, basically. Sure, I don't think anybody's argued that, and I don't think anybody could. Do you think that um, the, the the board can kind of move past that debate? Because it was a pretty feisty debate, just like the, the minimum wage debate. Um, how do you think they kind of go into the new year after that that kind of hot button issue? Sure. I mean, I, I'd have to let an individual aldermen speak for themselves. But for me, you know, I, I uh, spoke to uh, Alderman Coder immediately after the vote um, and have spoke to him, spoken to him several times since as well with uh, uh, Alderman Conway, who was a big proponent and I worked with him yesterday on some issues. And so, you know, I think it's important to be able to move past these things. I, I can't speak for everybody, but I think that you'll see that we're continuing to do that. Well, it is 2016. It's a new year. What do you think are going to be some issues? Um, we've talked a lot about crime. We've talked a lot about property development. What do you think are some other issues the board is going to deal with in the next 12 months? Well, I think right off the bat, we're going to have to deal with uh, getting um, this, uh, getting our earnings tax, uh, excuse me, our earnings tax passed. I think that's the number one goal for me this spring uh, is making sure that voters know how important it is uh, to vote uh, in favor of the earnings tax and how uh, that is a third of our city's budget. Um, uh, and we would be devastated without it. Um, and so um, I think that's the most critical thing that we need to do. Do you hear much talk about it when you go to um, neighborhood meetings and that sort of thing? Are people bringing it up at all? Uh, people have started to bring it up, uh, yes. Um, and so it's, and it was part of the stadium debate, and frankly, that's what really worried me. Um, and so, um, you know, even though I was not a, uh, in favor of the stadium, um, being v- uh, very vocal about my uh, 100% support of the uh, earnings tax passing, um, and so we'll continue to champion that as we move through the spring. To kind of piggyback on that point, um, I think that one thing that got brought up from some stadium opponents, I'm not saying it's you, but mm-hmm. I'm talking about just some, basically said, if you pass this stadium, we're going to protest it by campaigning against the earnings tax, which, you know, obviously has major consequences because sure. it would be 30% of the city's budget, maybe even more. Oh, it is closer to 40. 40. But mm-hmm. I mean, I think that the general 
reason why people are bringing that up is they're so mad that the city that the, that the city is kind of focused on the stadium, and by the city I mean the people that voted for the stadium and the people that ended up passing it, that they may take it out on the earnings tax, actually. I mean, that's a worry that I have, and and hopefully we um, can make sure that we get the word out that this is, it's neither, it's a separate issue. Totally separate issue. Um, We're talking about $160 million a year is what the earnings tax brings in. It's, you know, as Joe pointed out, uh, almost 40% of our annual budget. Um, You know, uh, where does that money go? It goes to, you know, 55% of our budget goes to public safety right off the bat, and so, and and city services. And so we're going to have to start cutting those things. Things. And and you know what the city would have to do if we if we lost the earnings tax we'd have to increase property taxes, we'd have to look at increasing sales tax. Um, you know the earnings tax. Uh, you know we're not a one big region here. The earnings tax is a mechanism for us to collect revenue from folks who work in the city and use our amenities, use our services to come into work every day. Um, and so this is a good way to spread at least some of that burden, the financial burden of running our city uh, to folks who, who don't live here. And so it's it's a very vital piece of how of our financial health. Any other issues besides the earnings tax? Because I think that's, that that vote is going to be in April, if I'm not mistaken. It is. So what are some other things you think will come down the pike? You know, I think we're going to be looking at uh, other ways to fund more officers mm-hmm. um, in the city. Um, you know, I mentioned 55 percent of our um, uh, budget goes to public safety. But, you know, we clearly have a public safety issue in our city. Uh, we've also been, you know, we didn't pass the bond initiative uh, last fall. Yeah. So we're going to have to look at ways that we can start funding some uh, some of our infrastructure. Uh, so there's been talk of a smaller, I think, $25 million municipal bond. Um, and so we're going to have to uh, look about, you know, how we can, you know, our, our, our fire department is sorely, uh, uh, you know, missing equipment that they need to function properly. Um, but we've also got a lot of other um, general obligation, bond, you know, issues that we have to, to deal with. We'll be following them all with, with great interest. Thank you very Good. much for coming in and uh, talking with us today. For all of our stories, stlpublicradio.org. You can follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. You can follow Joe on Twitter at... Jay Manis. That's J-M-A-N-N-I-E-S. And how could people follow you on Twitter? Uh, Kara Spencer, STL. Uh, Thank you very much as always. And until next time, so long.